We've crossed town on the underground and we're now in South London. Now by we, I mean me and Mr Binks. I should just clarify that uh, Mr Binks isn't my boyfriend, but he is my English toy terrier. We're here to meet Andrew Prentice, who actually used to be your vet, Mr Binks, but he's gone on to become an environmental warrior. He's suggesting that it might be time to eat the dog. I'm Anna Webb and this is A Dog's Life. Hi, Andrew Prentice. Thank you so much for welcoming us into your amazing home. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you for coming. Well, this is the last time I saw you. It was actually when um, you were in practice and yeah. I brought my cat, Gremlin, to you. I remember. <laughs> with a rather large... Huge abscess. A yeah. huge abscess on his rear mm. um, that was really nasty, actually, and it, it got quite bad, hadn't it? Yeah, yeah, it had. I mean, cats cats are good at producing abscesses. So, but today, you know, yes. we're really here now in your capacity as being the environmental warrior. <laughs> <laughs> or indeed the environmental warrior with an O, yes. That's <laughs> right. So it's like warrior. Doing both, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you've got, you know, you're you're like the Viking and you're like the academic. Exactly. Worrying in a warrior type way. Yes. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And you know, like so why are you worrying, Andrew? Like how bad is it all really? Oh, God. Well, virtually everybody on the planet, except Donald Trump, recognises the fact that we have a massive environmental problem on our hands. By almost every parameter, um, our environment and the ecology which supports the whole thing is really, really in trouble. Um, carbon dioxide levels rising, temperatures rising, acidification of the oceans, um, environmental ecosystem loss, species loss, loss of biodiversity. You know, it's the, the stuff that people have been talking about for more than a generation is really coming to a head now. And it's abundantly clear to almost everybody in the scientific community that if we carry on with business as normal, the next generation beneath us ain't going to make old bones. So we really, really have to do everything. And that means really reviewing everything that we do. Absolutely. And I guess you hit the nail there by saying, you know, it's about balancing business related profits with sustainability, you know, and perhaps losing this innate aspect of the human condition, which, you know, Apologies there for anyone listening, but you know, we have to accept that we are driven by ego and greed. Yes, yeah, and, and, and this is, is a problem. I mean, it's, it's, there's a reason why human beings are one of the most successful species on the planet. You know, we have been driven by the desire to succeed um, in a ruthless way since time immemorial when it comes down to it in in a time of crisis it's you or me yeah. who's going to survive we can't both survive well you know the biological drive is that the individual and the individual's family will survive at the expense of everybody else and we need to we need to rethink that well you know it would appear to me that um you know, we're probably one of the most stupid species that's ever actually, you know, developed in so much as we are probably the only species ever and ever will be to have potentially killed our own habitat. Yeah. 
We are that we we have become the victims of our own success. Yeah. But but equally the um, the very drive which got us into that situation, we have to try and harness that as a way to get out of it as well. Sure. Now, segueing slightly, you know, we've spent a lot of time, you know, domesticating the dog over mm. thirty thousand years. Yep. They have evolved beside us you know epi epigenetically we're actually closer than you know most people realize mm -hmm. yet Andrew could this now be the time to eat the dog <laughs> well there the, the are all sorts of cultural and biological reasons why we don't as a species generally eat carnivores and so uh, eating the dog is uh, well it does happen. I don't. I don't think we're into that. Well, in I don't think we're into that scenario. I tell you where I think it we was are. a book. It was a mental yes. literature. It was a book yes. by Robert Vale yes. that was published ten years ago. Yes. And I remember reading about this because yes. obviously it was in the Guardian, and it was shock horror. You know, I was reading some pretty nasty things about um, the animal that I rate higher than anything. You know, the mm. dog. Mm. Um, in terms of its carbon poor print. And I'm, I don't know if Robert Vale actually owns a dog or even likes dogs. It wouldn't have seemed so in what he wrote. But again, he was being very pragmatic that actually we've got to accept that carnivorous pets, um, dogs in his view are, are sinners, but in his view, cats are the devil. They are <laughs> the antichrist cats. Um, yeah. And measured on hectares of carbon mm. okay he said um andrew i don't know what you think about this that a medium-sized dog is equal to 0.84 hectares of carbon and a toyota yep. land cruiser in including its fuel for over ten thousand miles equates to only 0.41 hectares of carbon so there you have your Labrador, and there you have your to toyota land cruiser yep. and the Labrador actually is, is oh, a bigger yeah. carbon contribution yeah. than the vehicle. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. It is a problem. And I think pet ownership is one of the many things that we need to be um, ready to do a cost-benefit analysis. Just as, the, just as we do that with diet, just as, we, just as we do that with foreign holidays, um, transport in this country, you know, everything has a cost. Everything has an environmental cost. Uh, and we need to decide whether the benefits are worth it. And the figures that you're, you're giving there for the, it's one of the ways of measuring what is the environmental footprint of sure. something. Mm. And for, for dogs and cats, yeah, it, it is. I mean, the, the figures for dogs, you're absolutely right. The average human footprint is about 2.8 hectares. Right. Okay. But there are many, many people on the planet mm -hmm. um, in some of the third countries and the low impact countries who may be on maybe half a hectare. Of, of carbon footprint, which is less than a dog. So, you know, that puts it in context. But I think the important thing, I'm not here suggesting that we have to immediately go out and slaughter all the dogs and cats because we can't afford them, because they do bring benefits. And those benefits are identifiable and very valuable. Absolutely, you know, companionship, you know, help, helping the elderly, um, the assistance dogs, service dogs, as we can talk about that for ages. Yes. But how then do we balance this? Um, you know, for example, things around dogs, like all the paraphernalia that we're buying for dogs. Um, pets at home, for example, are showing, you know, profits going up year on year. Um, we've got products 
being made over in China out of lovely old plastic that are then shipped right across the world over to us here in London. And, and the consumerism for buying things for our pets has almost gone a bit silly and that's even me saying that I actually think now it's reached a level <laughs> as a world where, champion consumer as a world champion things. consumer and, <laughs> and at one point buying everything new for my dog Molly who you remember very well yeah. and um, it's you know dogs really don't need very much do they no they don't and it, you know, we do live in a, a really consumer society, and and what we are making and selling and buying for our cats and dogs, and the clothes and the collars and the the booties and the toys and all the you know accessories. You're quite right. We don't need them. Um, at the same time, there's an awful lot of people who are you know everybody needs to make a living, and people make stuff and they sell things, or they sell services, or they sell goods, and the and the pet trade is part of that, and that's part of the of the carbon footprint that we were talking about there. But if you're asking how do we how do we balance this? Well, we're beginning to put numbers now on what the cost side is. So now we really need to try and quantify a little bit more. Well, what are the benefits? I mean, is does somebody who has a dog and goes out and walks for half an hour twice a day, are they actually fundamentally fitter and healthier than somebody who doesn't? And um, what do you think? Well, I think uh, anecdotally, I think they probably are. I don't, I don't actually have those numbers, but they must be there somewhere. I read somewhere that elderly people um, who own a dog go to their GP 21% less than an elderly person who doesn't have a dog. And I, immune systems in households, so a dog in the home with, with children and so on, yep. those children take less time off school because they don't get as sick because yep. dogs do naturally boost your immune system. Yep, and there is, there is evidence that, that uh, pet ownership in childhood helps to develop um, social skills like empathy and things like that in children. Totally. And that's extremely important. And it's very hard to put, a, to put numbers on, on the benefit of that. But nonetheless, there are benefits. So mm. if you're fitter, if you go to the doctor less, well, that's a less of a drain on the NHS. And the NHS is a vast organisation with a huge footprint. So if you're reducing the footprint there, well, maybe it's worth paying out the environmental cost of the dogs because it actually reduces the footprint of the NHS by more. And then long term as well, the trend is that more and more people are going freelance, yeah. we're working from home. Yeah. We've got this huge pressure that I'm very ambivalent about called social media. Yes. Um, uh, hello which, social media by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, it is social, but it's at a distance. So yes. it, I mean, it can cause pressure. It can actually cause loneliness, alienation, yeah. Yeah. paranoia, yeah. Um, mental health issues. Yes, um, yeah. Every, and everybody's talking about mental health now. Exactly. Which is a very good thing in itself. Mental health issues have always been there, obviously, but I think it, it does look as if many people are living more and more in some kind of isolation. More people are living on their own. The, the isolation coming in from some of the social media and thinking, oh my God, everybody else is having a better life than me, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. In, that, in that context, then having a dog or a cat offers an awful lot of people a sense of comfort and companionship and the feeling that actually at least somebody out there loves me. Absolutely. And there is a value from that. 
Yeah, and um, cats, absolutely. You know, cats have the, that wonderful ability to just jump on your lap spontaneously and begin purring. Yeah, and a, cat, a cat purring is one of, it's one of the great sounds of the planet. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah. Like a well, clock ticking or this, it's very reassuring. And that, with your you know. vet hat on, yeah. you know, purring helps heal the cat yeah. and, and it actually transfers to actually healing a bit like chanting om in yoga. There's been anecdotal studies with, you know, and the chanting that actually works okay. to resonate. You're taking me way off. You're taking me way Wait. off the edge of the vet course at this point. Uh, yeah. Teachers at university. <laughs> Did they not? No, it's funny that. <laughs> Did no. they teach you about tighter testing? No, they didn't actually. do chanting. I, no, no, at all that. No, no, no. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. we might talk about that in a minute. Mm. Um, no, it's it's true, and it's that moment when you're in the moment, which is the yogic comparison there and the cat purring. Because you don't really want to move in case the cat suddenly goes, no, don't move, and sticks its claws into your leg. <laughs> yes. But so, and, and there's that moment of reflection, which I just feel in our world at the moment with, with all these different means of beeping at you, whether it's WhatsApp, whether it's Twitter or Instagram. Mm. Um, we're, we're kind of so segmented in our brains, and I think that contributes a bit to mental confusion, to be honest. But I don't know, I'm not... Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's no doubt, looking at the world we're living in, it is full of stress and strains and difficulties, and uh, and there's a, always a temptation to think it was better in the old days. I, we were, but we weren't there 100 years ago. There were many, many other stresses and strains 100 years ago. We were 100 years ago, we were far more likely to have died of malnutrition, of disease, or warfare. You know, those, no, are, the, those are the three, you know, the big three horsemen but, of the apocalypse. And Andrew, actually, worldwide, they're <coughs> at a lower level than they have ever been. It's right. just we watch television and we know far more about it than we ever did before. We have a tendency to think, oh my God, it's a nightmare, everything that's going on. But actually, almost everything except the environment is so much better than it has ever been before. Right, yes. But the environment is a problem. The cause environment... Because we're all going to die. <laughs> well, so we're talking there about sort of dogs being able to perhaps reduce the NHS's carbon footprint, which segues very nicely into, of course, drawing a bit now on your veterinary background. Mm. How do you feel about the pharmaceutical industry's contribution to this? <sighs> okay. Um... You go back a couple of generations, and the pharmaceutical industry was a fraction of the size it was now. We barely had antibiotics. We barely, we didn't really have very much in the medicine cabinet at all. And if you got cancer, you died. If you got a serious disease, pretty much you died. You know, and if it, if you could fix it with some aspirin, great. But there weren't that many options available. So the pharmaceutical industry and the medical profession have been responsible for an unbelievable transformation in our healthcare. That's true. Equally, they need to flog product and they need to sell stuff and they do it and they have sales teams who very aggressively pursue medical health professionals, whether they be human or veterinary. Sure. And certainly, you know, in, in at every veterinary clinic, and mine included, we would have regular streams of representatives from the pharmaceutical industries coming, saying, we want to give you a training session. Well, right. come along and train your staff about a certain disease or a certain condition. Actually, it's a sales pitch, you know, and they, and so... <sighs> There's a heavy pressure on them to sell the products that they research and develop. Sure. And they sell the idea to the vets or the doctors, but vets particularly because we're all private. 
to sell those products and everybody makes money along the way and that's not always in the best interests of the planet. Well, I can imagine. I mean, how are some of these products actually made? I mean, they're very heavily processed. We all know aspirin comes from tree bark. Yeah. Um, and one could use tree bark, but... <laughs> but okay, and I think, the, well, I think you know, and then the, it's mm. the industrial processing, isn't it? You know, that Well, it heat. is. It is. Uh, yes, uh, it's a, it, obviously it's a, it's a huge industrial process. Yes, so it's very energy-consuming and product-consuming. Uh, there is also a separate issue which, which concerns me quite a lot, which is the, the amount to which those... Um, medicines and products leach out into the environment afterwards. Absolutely. And uh, I'm very personally concerned about um, biodiversity and species loss and the, you know, the, the way the insect populations are dropping and the, 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 the rate at which we're losing species. One of those, one of the causes of that is going to be climate change, but another important cause is the use of pesticides, um, both in agriculture and on our pets. Yes, well... Uh, <laughs> Routine treatment of pets for parasite problems where there has not been an actual diagnosis I think is really irresponsible. Right? You're not allowed to do it with antibiotics. You shouldn't be doing it with parasite treatments. Um, you can do a risk assessment for a patient or you can actually do some diagnostic testing and by this, you're talking about sort of flea treatments, worm treatments, yeah. vaccines. Well, vaccines as well, yes. But here I'm talking specifically about flea treatments, tick treatments, worm treatments, lung worm treatments, and things like that. And they're mm. handed out like Smarties. And I think it's very irresponsible because there clearly are consequences from that. And there are there would be a much more responsible way of, of dealing with this. So it's a worry, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I'm vegetarian, but, and I used to eat fish. Yeah. Okay, um, I can't eat fish now, yeah. um, you know, because I really feel this is what you're saying. Um, all of these um, insecticides and pesticides, they're leaching, aren't they, through the soil, really into the fabric of everything that grows from the ground. And, they're, and then in its secondary process, it gets eaten by us. So all of these chemicals are actually very dangerous, very unnatural, and, and they're going into our stomachs on a daily basis mm -hmm. um, simply from being in the water and the land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and I mean, how many are... tonnes of this do you think there is in carbon footprint? Oh, God, I, um, I, couldn't, I couldn't give you a number of that, on that. I think there are, there are two sides to this. Though. The one is that, that these chemicals can have um, a direct effect upon us as humans, um, and of course they have enough... They, are having an effect on the, the, the pets that we're treating with them. But possibly a more important one is, the, is, the, is the, some of the effects that they're having in the environment. You know, out in the parks where your dog has a pee and a poo or they go for a swim in the lake and, you know, some of the, the product washes off and, and then it kills off some of the fish or the invertebrates in the water. Mm. You know, these, there is a reason that the European Union banned the use of a particular type of insecticide called the neonicotinoid. And, um, uh, insecticides because they are unbelievably toxic for bees and other pollinators. That's right. So so agricultural use has been banned, but guess what? We're still using them on pets. <laughs> so yes, I, I know, and I, I think I know the manufacturer, and there is a particular flea treatment. Um, well, yes, there's, I mean, the, 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 the trade, not the trade name, but the, the drug now, I'm talking about imidacloprid, but it's there, it's, you know, 
it's there. We shouldn't really be using that, and particularly shouldn't be using it on animals where we don't actually have a diagnosis. You're treating something that isn't there. Mm. So going you need to be very careful about stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so if, if all of this was balanced a little yes. bit more, um, so maybe the pharma- pharmaceutical industry you know, got smaller um, and its carbon footprint shrank, um, then perhaps owning a carniv- carnivorous pet that are the ones that generally take these um, treatments, it would, it would be um, a little bit, a little bit um, more logical that we could own Well, one. yeah, I mean, the difficulty is, of course, that if you, if you were to shrink the size of the pharma- pharmaceutical industry, then all the incredible cures for cancer and all the treatments for heart disease and all these other amazing things which make a huge difference to people who are sick, you're going to slow that too. So, so, you, so what you're saying is, are you actually saying that it's the that it's animals that are fueling the success of the pharmaceutical industry to help people? <laughs> no, I'm not, but it's... Um, the pharmaceutical industries, they're there, they have to make a profit. You know, and they have to make money, and they do make a substantial profit. Um, these things are always very nuanced. You know, it's never really black and white, no. and it's always really hard to make an argument to say, well, there should be a smaller pharmaceutical industry. I think that I think the that um, there needs to be a more responsible use of uh, pharmaceutical products that can have an environmental impact. Even That's potentially really looking at homeopathy as they do in India yep. um, to be available through the NHS. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's an option to you know, reduce um, the pharmaceutical load, um, all in a way of making pet ownership looking brighter for everybody in the future, really, Andrew, is, uh-huh. is what I'm thinking here. But the other big aspect... It seems that dogs are so questionable as being a pet of the future, down to what they eat. Um, Okay, and we all know this is because they are carnivores, and therefore they eat meat. And the whole aspect of meat consumption, taking up the land, you know, um, know, the the, the CO2 footprint of a cow, um, is is the big issue here. now, can you explain that a little bit more when you think the, the pet food industry in the UK alone is yeah. worth three billion? Yeah. And that is comprised of processed food. Yes. Almost, yes, very, very largely processed food, yes. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge industry. Globally, it's, it's absolutely massive. I was processed looking, looking at some figures this morning, it's getting on for 100 billion by the looks of it. Wow. Oh, that's pretty big. Mm. And in fact, and, and one of the figures that's quite hard to pin down is I'd ask you the question do you, have you any idea what proportion of the world's meat production is eaten by pets? I don't know. You know, I'm a vegetarian. Well, <laughs> the best evidence that I can find suggests that it's around 20 25%. Okay. If you imagine a quarter of the world's meat production being eaten by pets, that's an awful lot of meat. I was so, thinking it was going to be more. I mean, so basically, <laughs> well, that's 75% okay. is eaten, eaten by, by people. people. And yeah. we all know, Andrew, my nutrition head yeah. on here, that, you know, the human would be perhaps a bit healthier, a bit slimmer, perhaps have less heart disease, um, oh, yeah. less yes. diabetes if they just cut out meat. Because we are better developed as omnivores yes. to eat plants. Yes. 
Yeah, there are there are certain difficulties. Um, I mean, you can certainly have vegetarian dogs. You can do ve- you can dogs can be vegan with can it's they not, Yes, they can. You just need to be careful. There are certain amino acids. There's something called um, L-carnitine. No, carnitine. Well, no, the clue's in the name. Carnitine comes yeah. from carny, which is meat. Hang on a minute. Know. No, but hang on a minute. Hang mm. on a minute. So, you know, as dogs have a very small digestive system yep. compared to ours, which is a very long digestive system, yep. um, uh, coupled with the fact dogs don't produce amylase, or they produce a very small amount in their pancreas compared to us, which we produce this, uh, it's a starch-breaking um, um, enzyme, enzyme yeah. called yeah. amylase we produce it on our tongue in our saliva so yeah. a piece of bread that we take you know it starts digesting in our mouth so by the time it gets down to our stomachs it's already really broken down whereas with dogs that doesn't happen and well for me in my study with the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies to feed a dog a vegan would you know you may it's unethical. Well, you're kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. I mean, they're not designed to be vegan. I mean, they, they, they've developed biologically over thousands, millions of years to have a, a pretty omnivorous diet. And a big part of that is going to come from meat, from either from fresh kill or from scavenging and from other foods and fruits and veg and things that, that, they, that they find. They're pretty, they, have a, they function very well on a, on a mixed diet. I think I would argue that many of them don't function particularly well on a highly processed diet. And certainly at the clinic, I mean, we used to put, I used to put lots and lots of animals onto just a fresh raw diet. And, 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 and it was not at all unusual for a chronically ill animals so with long-standing digestive or skin problems, even some behavioral problems, but, but skin and digestion probably top of the list. You get them onto a, a fresh raw diet and many of them were very, very significantly better. So the, the heavily processed diet, not particularly good for them, just as it's not particularly good for us. You know, if you try to eat cornflakes every day, every meal, every day, you'd totally. probably be quite sick fairly soon. Um, so, but nonetheless, it is possible. It's possible to have vegetarian, vegan dogs. It's just, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. You're pushing against biology a little bit. When it comes to cats, um, there are certain amino acids that they cannot make themselves. You need to supplement them, and the only supplements come from either meat or shellfish. So, yeah, difficult to do. You can't, really, you can't really do it. And it's mad anyway, because cats clearly are carnivals. They're hunters. You look at the number so of... So are dogs though, Andrew, well, really. Yes. You know. yeah. So, Andrew, what do you think the solution is then? I think the bottom line is that as, as this whole situation unfolds, and the situation is unfolding on a, on a monthly... I'm talking about the environmental situation. It's unfolding pretty much on a monthly basis as we go past. We're no longer, we're no lo- no longer looking at decades ahead. You know, the, the timelines are getting shorter and shorter and shorter all the time. I think the move um, is probably has to be towards fewer and smaller dogs. Um, I, but I'm not against dogs at all, but I think that's the way it's going to have to go. And cats, again, um, well, you don't really determine the size of cats very much, but I think, you know, there are maybe 11 million cats in this country, um, each of them with their own carbon footprint that probably we need to be heading towards a smaller cat population. 
Probably. It's really hard. I mean, I can see people going to be jumping down my neck and we're going to get all sorts of flack for <laughs> this. But what about but a carbon it, tax? Just... That if your own personal carbon footprint, like me, for example, yeah. you know, I have not had children. Yeah. I know this is probably the most controversial thing anyone's probably ever said, but I know my footprint is small because yeah. of that. Yeah. I've also been a vegetarian and I drive um, a, 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 an eco mini. Yeah. I don't believe in four by fours either. Yeah. So, you know, can't, please, can I have a dog in the future, Andrew? Well, you know, I think actually part of the part of the way through this crisis is that people we need to encourage carbon literacy you know people should there are plenty of carbon cal- carbon footprint calculators online you know the world wildlife fund does a really good one uh, it's quite detailed but not too detailed so most people you can put in the figures from your own lifestyle and get an idea of what is your footprint people need to become familiar with that mm. because you're quite right if your if your personal footprint is 5 tons or 3 tons or whatever it is a year then you're in a better shape to do other things. There's a bit of a trade-off here. But as yes. if you were flying every week and your personal yeah. footprint was 30 tonnes sure. or 50 tonnes. I, mean, I, I haven't gone be... anywhere for years because no. of the dogs because yeah. I don't want to leave them. So yeah. Yeah. that's another bonus perhaps well, of owning a dog. You don't go on holiday. Yes. So I don't think, I don't think in this country um, and in um, most northern European countries, the average total human carbon footprint is around 12 tons a year okay that's the amount 12 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent we're producing each year that's quite a lot wow no we probably should be down about three right so that puts it in a little bit of perspective we get down to 10 that's progress get it down below but people in order to achieve those sort of changes there have got to be significant changes to lifestyle and if we set if we set our budget was seven tons for example that doesn't mean we've got a competition to try and use up our seven tons by having 25 dogs and never flying anywhere. <laughs> you know, it's everything we can do. You buy less clothes, you travel less, you eat more vegetables, you have a think about the benefits that your pets bring to you. And actually, if your pets are getting you out in the, in the park, so you, you're going out jogging, you're going running, you're super fit, you can talk to people in the park, because if you've got a dog with you, you can talk to anybody. It makes so many friends. Exactly. If you don't have a dog in the park and you talk to strangers, you get arrested. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there are huge benefits, a very identifiable benefit. Oh, totally. And then, but what, you know, what would happen with police dogs, army dogs, you know, guide yeah. dogs to the blind? I mean, who's going to lead the blind and the partially well, yes, but I mean, real, realistically, those are a tiny proportion of the, of the sure. overall situation. But the, so the bottom of you're saying, well, so what's the solution? Well, I think the solution is carbon literacy, individual carbon literacy, so that if, if we had a situation where everybody in the country knew pretty much what realised what their carbon footprint was, and then you can start to think, well, how am I going to reduce it? What decisions can I make personally? Um, I don't think we're looking at the end of cats and dogs. I really don't. But I think there has to be a little bit of a trade-off and we need to figure out a way that we can all have these pets which bring so much for us, but responsibly. I must admit, last year, I, would, I found myself getting really... Well, everybody talks about eco-anxiety now, but I was feeling the anxiety and feeling really rather depressed and thinking, actually, we're, we're stuffed here. We're not going to make it through. But I, I do... I think there is a rising groundswell at every level, whether it's from the, 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 the regular population of this country through the scientific community and even at government level. There is a recognition that actually we have to do something and we can do it 
but it's all about developing um, developing methods and techniques and people realizing what it is that actually can be done. I think it's a problem that can be fixed, but only with very radical lifestyle change. Well, let's hope so, and let's hope so to uh, save the dog. <laughs> save the dog. That's Thanks, the Andrew. You're welcome. <laughs> So that's our show, Mr. Binks. What did you think of it? Yes, Andrew was great, especially what he said about, you know, your carbon paw print. And thank you for listening. And I hope you found it fun and enlightening. If you did, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows. And while you're there, go on, please give us a five-star review. It really will help other dog owners find us. Thanks also to Mike Hansen, Cookie and Sophie Bradley for their help. And thank you, Mr. Binks, for being, well, just you. What's that? Oh, yes. We'll be back with another episode of A Dog's Life very soon. Why not subscribe now so you'll never miss a show? Dog's Life is a Pod People production. Pod People.